Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff as we usually do at the opening of each episode. We got a great response from our episode on Nathan Common. Man, what a strange case that is. Something I wanted to bounce off you guys. I've seen some reports that seemingly can't be true. These are news accounts. And one of the problems with this case with Nathan Common and Harmony Montgomery is the case hasn't went to trial yet, right? So in Nathan Common's case, I was wondering if anybody out there had heard anything on his GPS and his computer hard drive. I see reports that they're missing. I see other seemingly credible reports that they've been destroyed. It's a big difference, and I think it'll mean a lot in court. So if anybody has any information on that, send it along to me at barry at bostonconfidential.net. I'm kind of stymied on that end of it. But man, what a strange case. He's scheduled to go to trial. He's actually being held without bail in federal lockup. And he's scheduled, I think, to go to trial at the beginning of 2023. He's been charged federally in this case, I think, because there's just so many overlapping jurisdictions here. He lived in Vermont. His mother lived in Connecticut. The boat went missing from Point Judith, Rhode Island, and I think he was recovered off the coast of Massachusetts. So federal jurisdiction in this case definitely makes sense. It's kind of strange in this case. He's charged with the murder of his mother and fraud relating to the death of his grandfather, attempting to, I believe, collect insurance money and all this through the mail. So it's some type of mail fraud and all this other stuff, but... He's in a heap load of trouble, and I don't think they're done investigating his grandfather's case. And I bet, and I am a betting man, that by the end of the trial where he killed his mother, he'll be arrested and tried for his grandfather's homicide as well, and he'll be found guilty on all counts. That's my prediction. I also wanted to mention to you that I've discovered a new podcast. It's called The Murdoch Murders, and it's on Apple. That's where I found it. The Murdoch Murders. And it concerns Alec Murdoch and his family from South Carolina. And this seemingly is four or five deaths attributed to this well-oiled machine of a family in South Carolina. I find it extremely interesting, and I think you will too. Murdoch is spelled... M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H, but I think it's pronounced Murdoch. And Alex, A-L-E-X, is pronounced Alec. I don't know how that works, but that's what they tell me, at least through this podcast. It's an excellent podcast. I highly recommend it. Not a commercial, 
I'm not getting paid. I removed commercials from this program a while back and I've never regretted it. And I bet you haven't either. There is one other podcast I'd been listening to as well. And I had mentioned it previously. It's called LISK, L-I-S-K. And I found this one on Apple as well. I have an overriding interest in this case. It's the Long Island serial killer. And man, is it fascinating and it's brutal. It also has a tie to political corruption on Long Island. And man, it's fascinating. This is a very well done podcast. I mean, it's no Boston Confidential, but you got to give these rookies a try sometime, right, guys? All right. I know I just broke a cardinal rule in podcasting. First, mentioning somebody else's podcast on your podcast and recommending it because eyes turn away from your own podcast. But we don't play that BS on Boston Confidential. If I have a good podcast or a program on Netflix, I'll let you know. Feel free to do the same with me. I feel like, guys, at this time, I've got to reiterate our communication policy at Boston Confidential. Seemingly after the Harmony Montgomery case, we had a major increase in negative emails. That doesn't bother me. And you can disagree with me wholeheartedly. Some of them had to do with capital punishment. Some emails had to do with how I talked about people with drug addictions. And somebody pointed out, I used the word junkie. I don't like to use that word. Not a good word, especially if you're trying to be in recovery. I do apologize for that. I'm going to try to omit that word from my vernacular going forward. But when you email in, if you're already hot under the collar and you're not using decent manners, we're just not going to respond. If you have an inquiry, if you want to talk about something, touch base, let's do so. But again, just because we disagree doesn't mean I dislike you. And just because we see things or you think we see things from a different political perspective doesn't give you the right to use vulgarity, name calling, all that. And we never give that back. We'll just stop communication. I don't really see what the point is. I like engagement. I like negative engagement or what some people would see as negative engagement. I love a robust debate. One of the reasons I'm here. So guys, if you want to engage, please do so. But Marcus of Queensberry rules here. My email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. And that is the platform to get a hold of me. My Facebook platform, I'm sorry, I'm having a problem with that. And what's kind of overrun. So if you want to get a hold of me, use email barry at bostonconfidential.net. All right, guys, let's get to today's case. This is the startling and horrific case of Jennifer Dulos, a mother of five out of Connecticut. And this has been in the news. It happened in 2019. And Jennifer's still missing, guys, and she's feared dead. So that's where we are with that. But let me tell you a little bit about Jennifer Dulos growing up. She was born in New York City, seemingly from a bit of money. Her dad was a relatively famous investment banker, and her mom was involved in the social scene in New York City and was a pretty well-regarded philanthropist around town. Jennifer is the mom of five. I can kind of sympathize with that. The youngest of a family of five, 
And to this day, I still don't know how my mother did it. I've got three times I pulled my hair out. But for Jennifer, she loved it. And her family, her kids consisted of two sets of twins and one other non-twin, I guess. And she was a full-time mom, but she also wrote for Patch.com, a local newspaper in Connecticut. They're all over the place. They're kind of just local news. But she went to Brown University, so she was definitely a smart cookie to even get into Brown. And then she graduated from there in the early 90s and then went on to grad school, but back at NYU where she added another graduate degree in writing. So Jennifer was a beautiful woman, kind of statuesque, dark hair. I think striking is the word you'd use for Jennifer Faber and later Jennifer Doulis. She met her husband at Brown, but they didn't become a couple right away. Her husband, Fotis Doulis, was a good-looking guy as well. He seemed to have a way with the ladies. He didn't really hook up with Jennifer at Brown. They were friends. I don't know if they had dated well at school, but Fotis Doulis went on to marry somebody else after Brown, and he got an MBA out of... Columbia University, a short time after graduating Brown. Photostoulis became involved in high-end home building in the New York City and Connecticut area. Photos got married after Brown to a woman, and the marriage lasted about four years. And just after or around the end of that marriage, he began emailing Jennifer, and they became a couple pretty quickly after that. Jennifer and Dulos got married in 2004 and began a family right away. I had mentioned before they had five kids. The kids' names were Petros, Theodore, Constantine, and two little girls, Christiane and Cleopatra Noel. The couple had settled in Farmington, Connecticut, which is a beautiful town, and began their family. Man, did those kids come quick, like I told you, two sets of twins and a single, I guess you could say. And they lived in Farmington, which is just a little bit south of West Hartford, Connecticut. And I think Fotis's business had done well in that area, and that's where he was focused on. There were reports of trouble in the marriage just a few years in, and it kind of focused on... Fotis Doulis and his worldview. He kind of clung to an old world Greek view of marriage and women. And I don't know if Jennifer was totally on board for that, hence the problems. But now you got five kids, right? I think Jennifer was happy, but she kind of missed the New York City life. They both agreed that they didn't want to raise kids in New York City. But Jennifer was kind of a go-go person and New York City kind of fulfilled her worldview here a little bit. So as the years pass, I think Fotis' business had done well, and he was a millionaire pretty quickly after that. So the marriage seemingly gradually broke down, but by 2017, Jennifer had filed for divorce, basically stating that Fotis was living a separate life as it was, and 
in the divorce documents of June 2017, Jennifer accused Fotis of having an affair with a woman, a co-worker. She describes her as a co-worker, Michelle Traconis of Venezuela. She further alleged in the documents that she suspected that Fotis would use violence or other means to keep the children with him. She stated in the documents that he had purchased a gun relatively recently. So this was a pretty bitter divorce, guys, with allegations that each parent was disparaging the other to the children. And as good as you try to be, and Jennifer seems like a beautiful woman, I think that does tend to happen in these bitter divorces. The kids get used as pawns, and I think that happened. Probably less from Jennifer's side than from Fotis's side, but it was still there. By the time 2018 rolls around, Jennifer was granted physical custody and Fotis had visitation. In terms of full custody or the custody situation, both of them had joint custody, but Jennifer was the custodial parent. She was with them every day, taking them to school the whole nine yards. One thing that stood out to me was that Fotis had visitation, but it was supervised. And the phone calls had to be monitored by a third party, which I found odd. I mean, it would seem that the judge kind of believed Jennifer when she said that Fotis was disparaging her to the children and all that. So the supervised visitation, man... That's a big step, and that indicates there may be something more within this relationship with the ex-wife and the children. So, guys, I know that it's speculation as to why there had to be supervised visitation here, but that's a big step. I really only hear that in cases where there's been physical abuse or other abuse. If that was the case where Fotis didn't do those things, I could see where you'd be angry as to have somebody supervise your visits with your kids. But I think it's there for a reason, guys. The judge put it there for a reason. So it's safe to say that the divorce was a bitter-type divorce. And those restrictions on visitation and all that could change pretty quickly as emotions ebb a little bit. But one of the strange things is Fotis seems to want his children or keep his family together, but he's already dating somebody. He was dating that woman that was named in the divorce documents, Michelle Traconis. And Jennifer had described her as a co-worker. I think she worked for Mr. Doulis. So they were together and it was a mess of a divorce. It was a mess of a marriage, apparently. So as Jennifer filed for divorce, she left the home in Farmington, Connecticut, and moved to a place in New Canaan, Connecticut. Now, New Canaan, Connecticut is kind of considered like a suburb of Manhattan, of New York City. A lot of celebrities live there. I know David Letterman lives there, and it's a beautiful place, very high income, quick access to New York City. And I think that's what appealed to Jennifer. And plus, it was about an hour away from Farmington, so it gave her some space from the husband. So Jennifer moves to New Canaan in a beautiful rental house, 
And quite frankly, I don't think money was a problem or was ever a problem for the Doulises. I think on Jennifer's side, the Faber side, dad had a ton of money. And I think Mr. Doulis, her husband, also made a good living. So she just went and rented a house and that's how it was going to be. Was it a mansion? I don't know. It was a big, beautiful home. But that would take us, guys, up to May 24th, 2019. It was going to be a regular weekday for Jennifer Doulis. She had two appointments in New York City, I believe medical appointments. One at 11, I believe one later in the afternoon at 1. But she was going to drop the kids off to the new private school that she had arranged for them. She did, in fact, do that. And she's on videotape coming back to her residence at about 8.05, a neighbor's ring camera or whatever it was, security camera, picked her up just outside of the house. She was the only person around. So that takes us to about 8.05 on May 24th, 2019. So from that point in the morning, it seemed like an everyday type of day. And Jennifer has a nanny that had been with her. And I believe the nanny was going to pick the kids up from school because I don't see how Jennifer would get back from the city in time to pick the kids up from school. But the nanny's name was Lauren Almeida, and she arrived back at their house at about 11.30 a.m. And she was kind of startled to see there was two vehicles. One was a Chevy Suburban, and the Dulosas had another SUV a Range Rover, which Jennifer had stated she was going to take that vehicle into the city. And I think the nanny was going to take the Suburban to get the kids. I think it's a larger vehicle. Don't forget they have five kids, right? So that's what the nanny sees. The Suburban is missing and the Range Rover is present. Doesn't think too much of it and goes about her day. But by about 7.30, I think the nanny had went ahead and picked up the kids as scheduled. But around 7, 7.30, people start to call the police, the nanny and some friends. They haven't heard from Jennifer, and it's just not like her. Her appointment in Manhattan was set for 1 p.m. So if you think an hour for most medical appointments, I would take you to 2 that's a decent time to leave the city, maybe home by 3, 3.30, and she isn't. And her friends are getting worried. So detectives end up coming to the house, Jennifer's new house in New Canaan, and they come through, the nanny lets them in, and they see blood. They see some blood on the Range Rover, there's some splatter on the walls, and they go through the house a little bit, and they see signs not of a struggle, but things out of place. And there was a fair amount of blood, too much blood. You know, there's blood in everybody's house. Most people don't know that, right? But there was visible blood in the garage, on the car, on the floor. So now it takes a different tone, this investigation, right? So the police ramped this up pretty quickly. They called the doctors that Jennifer was going to see that afternoon, late morning and afternoon, and they find out she's never arrived. So she was scheduled to leave, I don't know, sometime after 8.30, 9.30, and she just never attended her appointments and never called to cancel, which was totally out of character for Jennifer Doulis. And 
At that point, the police put out a be on the lookout, a bolo for Jennifer's Chevy Suburban. And they find that at a park nearby called Waveney Park within the town of New Canaan. And now the cops are like, you know, there's something wrong. All this blood, missed appointments, abandoned vehicles. She wasn't scheduled to go to that park. So now the police think they have something. They've been informed of this divorce and how bitter it was. So naturally, they turn to look at Fotis Doulis. So the investigation ramps up pretty quickly. Fotis Doulis's DNA was found within the home. It was found in the garage, and it was found in the bathroom, and it was mixed with Jennifer's DNA, kind of like in the O.J. Simpson case, where O.J. Simpson's case was found co-mingled with Nicole Simpson's blood. And there's no reason for his DNA to be in a bathroom. They were divorced. Fotis Doulis was at their house a few days before for his final visit with his children. And I think that might have set this guy off that he wasn't going to do that anymore. So a couple days later, this all happens on the 24th. So the police began tracing Photo Stoulis's movements on the day of the murder. They end up placing him in, I believe it's Michelle Traconis's Red Ford Tacoma pickup truck. And they take that from Farmington, and I believe they can trace it by surveillance cameras all the way towards Jennifer's house. And a police affidavit would later say this is how it went, that Photos Doulis at a minimum planned to kill Jennifer, and he took the Ford Toyota Tacoma pickup truck from Farmington down to New Canaan. And at a certain point, he biked up to the house. And as the police said in their affidavit that he laid in wait for Jennifer to either return or he snuck in the house while she was there. But he laid in wait for her to get home. And the nanny would later say there was Jennifer's coffee cup on the counter and also an uneaten breakfast bar, a granola bar that she'd usually have during that time. And they believe it was at that time, just after Jennifer made her coffee, that Photo Stoulis somehow biked up. There were bike tracks, you know, there's physical evidence of this. The police did a good job with it. There's photographs and evidence of bike tracks coming up to the house. And they believe Fotis went in and hurt her to the point where there was bloodshed. There was massive violence. But if you notice later what Fotis was charged with, he was also charged with kidnapping. And I did read that when this was happening, but I'm like, I didn't really put it together. So basically what the police are saying is Fotis gets there. He doesn't do the murder in Jennifer's home, but he somehow incapacitates her with violence, apparently, puts her in the vehicle. He puts her in her own Chevy Suburban and departs that way. So I don't know what happens at that point with the bike and the Tacoma and all this other stuff, but that's what the police say happened. So she was alive because the kidnapping charge illustrates this. She was alive leaving the house, hence the charge, right? 
she was still alive. And later they would trace this Tacoma pickup truck. It's a small pickup truck. You've probably seen a million of them. Fotis was driving. I believe that was ascertained. But it was believed Michelle Traconis was in the passenger side of this vehicle. And they're going through this stretch of Albany Avenue in Hartford. It's kind of like a commercial district. And along the way, they're dropping off package like trash bags into dumpsters. He throws something into a storm drain. Yeah, what he threw in the storm drain was a FedEx package, which would later be found to contain a license plate of a former vehicle owned by Fotis, right? And also other things. The police went back to some of these dumpsters and recovered the items. And there was zip ties, bloody clothes. It would later be determined that Fotis Doulis, his DNA was on some of it and Jennifer's was on other portions. What that leads me to believe is Jennifer was in fact kidnapped from her home, but was taken somewhere else and killed and disposed of, guys, as she was chopped into pieces. And there was 30 bags that the cops saw Photos Doulis and Michelle Traconis dump along that stretch of Albany Avenue. Bloody clothing, zip ties, co-mingled DNA. So he took her somewhere else and dismembered her, guys. That's a different level of crazy here, right? So the police in Hartford continue looking for these bags. And after they were examined, Michelle Traconis's DNA was found in some of these, you know, zip ties, bloody clothes, bloody gloves, the whole nine yards. So the DNA that was found was from Fotis Doulis, Michelle Traconis, and Jennifer Doulis. So the jig's up here, guys, right? There's a ton, and I mean a ton of evidence. So come June 1st, remember the disappearance occurred on May 24th. And come June 1st, Photos Doulis and Michelle Traconis were charged. They weren't charged with the homicide. They were charged with hindering prosecution and tampering with evidence in connection with a homicide. They were both arrested, and later a search warrant would be conducted at Photos Doulis's house in Farmington. The police found what would later be deemed as a phony alibi script delineating the activities of Michelle Traconis and Photos Doulis. Michelle Traconis would later say, yes, that was in fact a lie and a setup. So what's missing here is the murder crime scene. Where did they kill Jennifer Doulis, right? Because it would be a bloody, bloody mess. It's just crazy. I don't know if he would have had time to drive all the way back to Farmington to his house and then back to Hartford in time, but I don't know. That's missing. That crime scene is missing. So the police began expending a lot of manpower, personnel, whatever you want to call it, on this case. They get a group of cops to search this recycling plant, the dump, basically, and they also search the offices of Photos Doulis's business. That business was called Four Group Properties. And an area in Avon where there was water skis and skiing and other properties connected with the Doulis family. 
they own property all up and down Connecticut and some in New York, I believe. So that's when they came up with that alibi script. So that takes us up to about June 24th. And just around that time, Dulos had an attorney, and I think he was a pretty good one, Norm Pattis. And I believe he was out of Hartford, Connecticut, but he had thrown this out there, it's kind of silly, that Jennifer, I had mentioned she's a writer and a pretty prolific writer. She had written a book or manuscript in the theme of The Gone Girl, the book by, I believe it's Gillian Flynn, and later starring Ben Affleck in the movie. This was all a setup to hurt the husband whom she had known was cheating. So they were really just trying to muddy the waters on this. And they were saying, Norm Pattis was saying that Jennifer was still alive. That's what he was saying, that she was still alive and trying to make Fotis Dulles, his life, miserable. He didn't go on to explain the blood, the bags of trash, the zip ties. Conveniently, that's left out. So Dulos and Traconis, they make bail because these aren't capital charges. They couldn't be held without bail, and they do so. It was around this time, guys, that Jen's mom, Gloria Faber, had taken custody of the kids and brought them to Manhattan with her. And that would be continued several times. And I actually believe they're still there today. So your heart kind of goes out to the cops in this case because, man, they deployed at this dump. I, they call it a transfer station now, but it's basically the town dump recycling center, whatever it is. And, man, they go through the trash at these places. <laughs> I think they usually empty the police academies of recruits to have them do this. And every other guy who's on this shift goes and does it with them, you know. And I don't know if they ever came up with anything more at the dump, but they had a ton of evidence, zip ties and the whole nine yards I had mentioned with the DNA commingling and all that. But come September 4th, there's more charges for Photos Doulis. He was arrested and charged, again, with tampering with evidence. And I just think the police were trying to ramp up the pressure on this guy. But he already had an attorney, and there wasn't an opportunity to interview him. But he does get pinched at that point. And the next day, Michelle turns herself into the police. And I always thought Michelle Traconis in this case was going to be the weak link. Michelle Traconis was charged in the same manner as Photos Doulis again for the second time. But I think it would come out pretty quickly that Traconis was cooperating with the police. And I believe it was around this time in September when she did so. She had stated to the police that, yes, this alibi script was a lie. And I believe she was negotiating a plea deal to either not be charged or face reduced charges. But my God, you're driving around Hartford after your boyfriend just dismembered his wife, getting rid of bloody clothes. And I know the state of Connecticut needs her testimony, but damn, that's just some damning stuff, right? I think she would have been looking at, you know, accessory to murder after the fact, tampering with evidence, maybe a whole slew of other charges. But Michelle Traconis was cooperating, but I don't think that was common knowledge. I'm sure lawyers would have suspected it and all that, but it wasn't public knowledge at that time that Michelle was cooperating with the police. 
Fast forward to January 7, 2020, and Photostoulis is charged with homicide. Everybody knew this was coming, right? But here it was. He was charged with homicide. Michelle Traconis was charged with conspiracy to commit homicide. And one of Photostoulis's former attorneys, Kent Mawiney, was also charged with conspiracy to commit homicide. And I believe the attorney's involvement in this was constructing a alibi, what they had called like an ironclad alibi. And it simply wasn't true. And they charged the attorney with that. And this Kent Mawiney would just unravel. He seemed to be having a lot of problems and some of them to do with alcohol. I'm not going to get too deep into Kent Mawiney in this podcast, but it's an interesting facet of this. And I don't think either Fotis Doulis or Mawiney anticipated Michelle Traconis to testify against them, but that was going to be the plan, I think. So some of the evidence against Mawiney and how the police got to him was phone records. During this dump, the baggage dump on Albany Avenue in Hartford, it seems as though Mawiney and Dulos were talking about potential alibis as he was dumping bloody evidence, you know? And there was some talk about a human grave, a suspected human grave at a gun club in Granby, Connecticut. So I believe Photos Dulos was out on bail for those other charges, the tampering with evidence, both of those charges or whatever they were. But his bail was continued and he had a home confinement restriction on this bail. He had to stay within his house because he was, you know, accused of dismantling these elaborate memorials people set up to his wife, Jennifer, at the end of the street in Farmington. They had lived there, they had neighbors, they had friends, and people were looking to mourn. And Photostoulis is accused of leaving his house and dismantling these memorials and all that. And the judge kind of ripped him a new one on that and said, stay in your house. So bail continues from after Photostoulis was charged with the tampering of evidence through the murder charge. Now comes January 28th. So on January 28th, both Traconis and Photos Doulis were to be in court. They were going to talk about revoking the $6 million bond that Photos Doulis had on him. And I think it was to do with that memorial service. And now he's been charged with murder. So they're thinking about holding him without bail and revoking that $6 million bond he had already posted. And... At a certain point, Traconis was at the house in Farmington with Fotis Doulis, and she leaves separately, and she's on the way into court. He says, I'm going to be right along, but no. He attempts suicide at the house with carbon monoxide, and after he doesn't show up, hours after he doesn't show up for court, they dispatch a Farmington police officer to do a well-being check. I think it was more than one police officer. I think they're going to take him into custody, quite frankly. But they look through the garage and they see the cars running and he has carbon monoxide poison. And if you've ever seen anybody who's had carbon monoxide poisoning, 
they can be cherry red, they can be blue, they can be black, and it's a tough, tough scene. But he's declared dead originally, but the supervisors on scene, both EMS and police, start CPR, and he's eventually transported to the hospital. And I think he was eventually life-flighted to the Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx because of this kind of specialized for carbon monoxide poisoning. What they do is they put you in a hyperbaric chamber to kind of squeeze the carbon dioxide or monoxide, whatever it is, out of your system. That was unsuccessful, and Photos Doulis was declared dead by suicide. The cops naturally get a search warrant for the house in Farmington, and they find a note proclaiming his innocence. Basically, Photos Doulis says, I'm not going to spend another second in jail for something I didn't do. But man, the evidence was overwhelming here, right? And he kills himself, and he leaves Michelle Traconis to take the fall for this case. Imagine that. There is a strange bit of humor in that. He commits the murder with her assistant saying it's going to be all right. And they've got her on video all through Hartford dumping these bloody clothes, whatever it is. I don't think it was body parts. Otherwise, they would have made a pinch long ago. But everything associated with this dismemberment. And he's gone. He's dead. Now Michelle's got to take this fall by herself. Something strange about that, right? Is it funny? Is it weird? I don't know. So I guess the natural question is what happens next? And they haven't recovered Jennifer Doulas. What was recovered in those 30 bags, those 30 stops that Traconis and Photos Doulas conducted on Albany Avenue, body parts weren't recovered. But they didn't recover all those bags either. But they recovered a crap ton of evidence that ties both Michelle and Photos to Jennifer's homicide. You know, it's just a fact. And I saw something, I think, on one of the crime shows, the national crime shows from Michelle Traconis's family. They're adamant she didn't do it. Her DNA, guys, as I said before in this podcast, was co-mingled with Jennifer's DNA and Fotis's DNA. I don't know exactly what item of evidence it was. Was it clothing, zip ties? But she's in this. She, if she's in it for a penny, she's in it for a pound. So what happens next? She was cooperating with the police. I think she saw the writing on the wall here. She maintained her innocence. And in that special, her family does too. But her lawyer's got to be telling her, you've got to tell them absolutely everything or you're going down for 10 or 20 years yourself. And I think she was coming to that moment where, yeah, I'm going to do that. She had already told the police that the alibi script was phony. And I think she was working with them more than that. They were ramping up for Fotis's trial. So again, what next? Michelle Traconis and the attorney Mawiney there have been charged with conspiracy to commit homicide. That's a 25-year felony in Connecticut. Also, Michelle has those evidence tampering charges, uh, two rounds of those. Those got to be 10 years apiece. She's out on bail now, I believe, and I just don't know if the state of Connecticut really knows what to do with her, but I think they're going to charge her with conspiracy to commit homicide. So... It's going to be difficult, that charge, though, just kind of thinking about it out loud because 
you're in conspiracy with somebody who's dead. So a good defense attorney may be able to make a nice day's work at that trial. But if you lose, you're looking at 30 years. I think that's about all I have on this case. Man, it's a true murder mystery. But when you dig deeper, it's kind of just a typical domestic violence case, you know? And it's sloppy and crappily planned. And now I think Michelle Traconis is going to pay the price on all of it. This Mawiney guy, I didn't get into too much of it, but he seems a bit sleazy. It seems like he had some substance abuse issues. If you're interested, just do a quick Google search. It'll show up. But I'll keep you posted on Michelle Traconis and let you know what's going on with that whenever I see something in the media. But other than that, I think that's all I have for you guys. I'll get on to the next one. I'll see you on the flip side, all right?